Good morning, church. If you have your Bibles this morning, I invite you to open to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 20 this morning. Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. If you're using a pew Bible, it's page 822, page 822 in the pew Bible. It's good to stand up here and to sing all together. Um, it's, it's fun to have uh, the seat that I do to hear all of your voices singing. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a true pleasure. And so uh, thank you for your patience this morning and for these next few weeks uh, as we gather together and as we fit in through that small door back there and make our way to our seats and adjust. But it is good for us to gather together to remind us to remind ourselves of what we long for, of what God has called us to, of how he's designed the body to be together. And uh, understandably and out of necessity, we've had two services now uh, for over four years. Over four years. It was Easter of 2018, talking with Pastor Stephen, uh, that two services were instituted, obviously, for various reasons. Um, and so it's good to remind ourselves of what we long to get back too. And so the air conditioner is working. I see a few of you going like this. Uh, it'll get there, hopefully, Lord willing. Uh, <laughs> but uh, we're excited to worship together. This month, these, uh, these five or really four Sundays, we're going to be doing a little mini-series on different aspects of the church entitled Church Matters. And you can make of that what you will with that title, Matters of the Church, because church matters. It's important. And so we're going to start this morning looking at Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20, and looking at the ultimate source and foundation of the church uh, in Jesus Christ. So let's pray, and then I'll read our passage this morning. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for the grace that you show us in Jesus Christ. Lord, the fact that we are born again, that we can be redeemed from the slave market of sin. We can be made clean. We can be dressed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Lord, as you look upon us, you see the righteousness of Christ. You made him who knew no sin be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Lord, that we can stand before you and that we can have one who intercedes and is our advocate and one, Lord, who has deemed us worthy to come. Thank you for Jesus. And as we look at your word this morning, may we remember that he is not only our savior, but he is the cornerstone. He is the one who is building his church. This is his church. He is the head of it. It is his body. He is the bridegroom. We are the bride. And Lord, we belong to him. And Lord, as we belong to him, may we seek to live for him as he is washing us and cleansing us and preparing for himself a spotless bride. Lord, we give thanks for that. We pray for all this in your son's name. Amen. Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you Say that I am. Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. 
And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. If you're sitting with us regularly as we travel through the gospel of Mark, this passage will probably be familiar to you. Several weeks ago, we walked through Mark's account of this very passage, and we focused on Peter's confession of Jesus being the Son of God. And the fact that God, the Father, was the one who revealed this to Peter through Peter's witness of Jesus' miracles, of his healings, all the miraculous things that Jesus had been doing through the gospel at that point. Matthew's account is a little different. It's very, very similar. There's nothing that contradicts. It's just more fleshed out. And we hear a little bit more about Jesus's response to Peter's confession. We have the phrase, I, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. I will build my church. And there's just a different nuance or flavor that Matthew is giving us as he fleshes out the picture of Jesus and his ministry that Mark does not include. Mark is concerned about Jesus being the suffering servant king, that he is the Messiah, that he is the son of man. Matthew is a little bit more interested in establishing Jesus as this kingdom, the one who rules this kingdom, and how this kingdom is presented by Jesus. But yet, through Jesus's presentation of himself, There's something else that is coming. This is his body, the church. And this is the first instant of it uh, mentioned here in Scripture, in Matthew 16. The church, we understand, obviously, in the local sense, right? This is a local church. A local church is a body of believers who believe in Jesus Christ, who have been born again, who have gathered together to celebrate the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's table, which one will do this morning to preach and teach the word of God and to establish themselves in a local church to keep one another accountable and live out the one another's, the local church. But there's also the universal church, which is every believer from the time of Pentecost, the coming of the spirit in Acts 2 until Jesus raptures his church when he catches them up. Those who are indwelt with the Holy Spirit of God following their salvation. So there's a local church and the universal church. Jesus here is speaking of the universal church. The fact that he is building for himself a building, a body, a family. All are the, these are all terms used by Jesus to describe the church. Church comes from the Greek word ekklesia. But the word church is actually a transliteration from a Scottish word, kirk. If any of you know anybody named Kirk, their name really means church. Like It's the Scottish word uh, for church or Kirk, and so that's where we get our English word. But the Greek word ekklesia means an assembly, a group of gathered people for a specific purpose in a specific place and time. That's why we long as a body to get back to meeting in one service because a true local church is a body of believers that meet in one location at one time. Right now, we have an 8 a.m. and a 10.30 a.m. service. Obviously, 
out of necessity for space and such. But we know that that's just a stopgap measure. It's not the way that we want it to be indefinitely. Because a church is a body of believers who gather together in one place at one time for the observance of the ordinances, for the teaching and preaching of the gospel, and for mutual accountability in our Christian life. And this is what Jesus is establishing here. This group who are gathered together, this group of believers. This is at a local church. And the universal church is those across time who have believed in his name following Pentecost until the rapture. And as we look at these verses here, and as Jesus says, I will build my church, we will see how he will do this, how he will build it, what he uses, the purpose of it, and ultimately, it's security, it's perseverance. Our big idea this morning as we look at these verses is that this, is that Christ builds his church through his people. He builds his church through his people. Christ is the one who builds his church. He is the ultimate source of growth of the church. Christ is the owner of his church. Christ is the one who provides the, the security and the safety and the perseverance of the church. But as believers, we are humbly used by Christ to accomplish this. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God through the people of God to build Christ's church. What an amazing privilege we have what an amazing promise it is and what an amazing position it is to be members of his church, to be part of his body and to be used by him. So let's look here how Christ builds his church through his people. In verse 13, we see how Jesus and his disciples are making their way. They're traveling through the countryside. They've come to Caesarea Philippi. This is a, a Gentile region named after Caesar but differentiated from other cities named after Caesar with the addition of the term Philippi. It, it's a location. It, it signifies which Caesarea it is specifically. And he asks his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Jesus uses that phrase, Son of Man. That's my favorite title for Jesus because it goes all the way back to Daniel 7 where Daniel sees this vision of the throne room and the, the one who is the ancient of days filling up the throne room. And then he sees one coming as the son of man. This is Christ in this vision, this redeemer, this Messiah. The one who is going to make all things right. Who's going to take the broken and the crooked and make them perfect and smooth. The son of man. And Jesus says, who do you say that the son of man is? Verse 14, and they said, well, some say John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the forerunner of Jesus, the one who is a voice crying in the wilderness. And if you remember from our account in Mark, as John the Baptist preached and as he taught and called the nation to repentance, um, let's just say Herod and those in positions of authority didn't take kindly to that. And John the Baptist lost his head for it. And so some say it's John the Baptist reincarnated or resurrected. Others say Elijah, right? Elijah, the great prophet in the Old Testament who stood against Jezebel and Ahab, who did miracles, who called down fire from heaven and consumed the wet offering in the battle with the prophets of Baal. This mighty prophet. Perhaps it's Elijah. No. Others say Jeremiah. Why Jeremiah? Jeremiah was a prophet who spoke against the sinfulness and the wickedness of the nation, 
and the coming judgment of God upon the nation. Jeremiah was a weeping prophet, for he prophesied and he prophesied, but yet no one listened. Some say he's Jeremiah. Or one of the other prophets, one of the Old Testament men used by God to declare God's action, God's plan to the nation and the surrounding nations as well. A lot of good options there. A lot of good options. But Jesus, it says in verse 15, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Have you ever had somebody do that to you? You're talking about an object maybe whether it's a vehicle or a tool or whatever it may be. And, and you look up on the internet um, reviews of it. Maybe you do this. You go to buy something, and my wife does this. We were looking at something the other day, and she goes, it only has 4.2 stars out of five. And in my mind, I'm like, only? That, that's really good. Like, that's, like, that's like 84%, right? <laughs> and we're constantly... Uh, looking at those reviews, or it look, works well, doesn't work well. But what is most helpful is when you talk to somebody who's actually used it themselves, right? When you go to somebody and say, hey, do you like this? And maybe you've done this, right? You've used something that's been somebody else's, and you've used it, and you've talked to them, I really like that. Like, yeah, it works great. Rather than listening to what everybody else says, you ask somebody on an individual basis, somebody very specific, well, what do you think? Not what does everybody else think, but what do you think? And that's what Jesus does here. He says, okay, disciples, you've heard the crowds. You've heard what other people have said and what they've, they've thought and what they've called me. But what about you? Who do you say that I am? Now imagine being a disciple, one of the 12 standing there. And maybe you weren't prepared for this and you're caught off guard. But there's always Peter. And Peter's always one to speak up. And so he does. As the, uh, in a sense, leader of the disciples, he speaks up. Verse 16, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the Christ, that Christ, that term Christ is anointed one or Messiah, that he is the chosen one of God. And not only that, he is the son of the living God. He is God himself. What a confession. You are the Messiah, Jesus. You are the son of God. Clear as day, right there, Peter makes his confession. And he clearly understands and articulates who Jesus is, what Jesus is doing, and the fact that he is truly God. And Jesus responds to him and says, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Bar-Jonah means son of. Simon, son of Jonah. So Simon's dad name was Jonah. Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Through Peter's understanding of who Jesus is and what he saw, God sovereignly opens the eyes of Peter, and Peter has this realization. Not that he comes to full and perfect faith in, in Jesus, for Peter's still going to fail, but he has the understanding, and he's starting to see the picture of who Jesus is, and Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon. For you have seen this. This has been revealed to you by my Father who is in heaven. Peter makes this wonderful confession. And it's so important because this is who Jesus is. This is the core of Jesus' ministry. He's the Messiah, the anointed one, the Lamb of God, who is fully God. This is who Jesus is. 
But then starting in verse 18 through verse 19, Jesus responds to Peter and he fleshes out what this means. What is the consequence of this statement? What flows from this? So as we think of the church of God being built through his people, Jesus fleshes this out for us in the first point that the church is built through people. He says in verse 18, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The church is built through people. He says, I tell you, you are Peter. So this is Peter's Greek name. He has uh, his name Simon. So he's often referred to as Simon Peter. It's Peter, it's, it's his Greek name and it means rock. Uh, Petra or Petros, it, it means rock. And he says, you are Peter and on this rock, and your Bible might have a footnote. Uh, if you have a, an edition of the ESV with a little one, it says the words for Peter and rock sound similar. They are almost the same uh, word. One is the idea of kind of a big rock, that's Peter. And then the other one, uh, rock, is like a stone or pebble. So there's a lot of similarities, but there's a little bit different nuance. And this statement has been discussed and thought about and abused in so many ways over the past 2,000 years. It is this statement that the Roman Catholic Church uses to come to the understanding that Peter was the first pope, that he was God's representative on earth for the establishment of his church and the first in a long line of papal authority, right? Upon this rock, upon Peter, I will build my church. He is, in a sense, the human head of the church, St. Peter, St. Peter's Basilica is, is there in Vatican City, the head of the Roman Catholic Church. And they see this line of the seat of Peter, they call it, that's been passed down through the centuries to human men, that this individual who is, quote unquote, the Pope is God's representative on earth for the church. They take this phrase and, and they abuse it in the sense that they think that, G, that Jesus is saying that Peter is the head of the church here on earth. That's one interpretation of this passage. The other, which has often been used in Protestant circles, is this, is that this rock, the lowercase, the little rock, uh, that I will build my church on, isn't Peter, but Peter's confession. What is the rock that Peter is presenting here. It's this confession that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. So the church is not built upon Peter the man, but rather upon his confession of Jesus as the Messiah, that he is the son of the living God, that that's the cornerstone on which the church is being built. So you see the, the two opposite approaches. Um, I think there are weaknesses obviously in the first one, and even in the second one. And I think because of our desire to stay away from the Roman Catholic theology, we miss a little bit of the nuance of what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. I think that Jesus is including not only the confession of Peter, but Peter himself. But not in the sense that Peter is the head of the church, that he is number one, uh, human, the number one man in God's church, but rather that God is going to use people to build his church. 
Did God use Peter in the establishment of his church here on earth? Absolutely. Read the first 10 chapters of Acts. Peter preaches and 3,000 come to faith in Christ. Peter preaches and men and women get saved. Miracles happen. What Jesus is saying here is that, yes, your confession, Peter, is part of it, but so are you as an individual. Throughout the New Testament, we read of people being used by God to build his church, even in that language, how we are part of the building that God is doing and that he uses individuals here. I would suggest to you that the phrase used by Christ involves Peter and his confession. Peter's preaching and position is paramount in the establishment of the church, but what outlives Peter is his confession. Peter is used as a follower of Christ, but so are so many others. And this statement made by Jesus makes clear for us that the church is going to be built on the confession of Jesus as the Messiah and by those who confess it. God's church is built by faithful men and women sharing the gospel. Ultimately, Christ is the one who builds his church. We're going to talk about that. But men and women are one of the main means by which he does it. Peter being one of the first and most impactful individuals. Think of our local church. Think about you. Who shared the gospel with you? Who proclaimed to you the good news of Jesus Christ? It might have been a mom or a dad. It might have been a brother or sister or grandma or grandpa. It might have been a friend. It might have been an Awana worker or a Sunday school teacher or, or a pastor or a co-worker. So many different individuals used by God to bring us to saving faith in Christ. Romans 10, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And how shall they hear unless they don't, someone comes and preaches to them, right? God uses us as human individuals to share the good news of what Peter confessed to build his church. Not just pastors, but every faithful believer to proclaim the goodness of God through Jesus Christ. We should all proclaim the gospel. It's how God has designed the church. If you want to see our church grow and to see people saved, share the gospel. It's amazing how people get saved when you share the gospel versus when you don't. <laughs> but this is a wonderful reminder for us that as Jesus makes this wonderful statement of how he will build his church. He is going to use you and I to do it. What a wonderful privilege that we have. That as we think of our local assembly here in Horton and from all the surrounding communities, I was just at a, uh, our GARBC National Conference this past week and talking with people I knew and with people I didn't, and they said, where are you pastor at? And I said, Horton Baptist Church. They're like, huh, I've never heard of Horton, Iowa. I said, huh. Most people haven't. <laughs> well, they say, well, how big is Horton? And that's one of my favorite things to tell them. And I said, well, on a normal day, uh, 40, 50. What? And the normal question then that falls up is, well, how big is your church then? I said, we average around 120 to 140 every Sunday. What? Where do they come from? I said, everywhere. <laughs> and that is an amazing thing. That is an amazing thing. And it's such a wonderful picture for us of how God uses people in Horton, in Plainfield, 
and Nashua and Waverly and, and Shell Rock and, and Tripola and Sumner and Olwine and Fredericksburg and Frederica and all the cornfields in between. That out of all these communities, he's called people who believe in him to gather together. And we gather together to worship and to lift high his name, to observe the ordinances and to keep one another accountable and to encourage one another. But I love it then on Mondays when we go our separate ways and we send out you into all these communities and the impact and the people that you rub shoulders with, that you can be used by God to build his church, that we can see people come to faith in Christ, who is someone in your sphere of influence that you can pray for, that you can invest in, and that you can share the gospel with? Think to yourself, who is someone in your sphere of influence? Just one. It doesn't have to be a million. Just one. But think if every one of us shared the gospel prayerfully with one individual throughout a year, and you led that one person to faith in Christ. If everybody did that, we would double the size of our church in a year then we'd really have to figure out space. <laughs> but God uses us to build his church. But Peter, or excuse me, Jesus continues. says, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. I'm gonna, I'm gonna use you, Peter. I'm gonna use others to build your church. But know this, that the church is built by and for Jesus. That's our second point. The church is built by and ultimately for Jesus. Because he says, Peter, on this rock I will build my church. That phrase, I will build my church. We can break down this phrase in a lot of different ways, but ultimately Jesus is the one who's building his church and it's for Jesus that it's being built. It's very clear. Look at the pronouns, I and my. I will build my church. No offense to Jesus, but he kind of sounds like my four-year-old right now. I will do it. Those are my toys. Jesus says, I will build my church. It belongs to him. There is no doubt of who the ultimate head of the church is. Thankful Kurt read for us Colossians 1. Jesus is all these things, but he is the head of the body, the church, and he is to pre be preeminent in all things. And we know that he will do it. He says, I will build my church. There are no supply chain issues with Jesus and his building of his church. The materials are always present and accounted for, always paid in full. He's not like a contractor with delays and delays and delays and, oh, it's a rainy day, I can't build today. No, he says, I will build my church. He will do it. It will come to pass. He's in the process of it and he is building it. It's something that's getting bigger and stronger and more beautiful. And it's this continual activity. Jesus will build his church. There's no stopping Jesus, no delays whatsoever. Nothing that we might think that man can do can inhibit Jesus from building his church. And you might think, what about all the things that happen and, and the ways that the gospel can be squelched and, and governments and persecution it's amazing how God uses those things to refine and build his church. Think of COVID. Think of the pandemic. On one sense, that was a very difficult time for churches. You weren't sure whether you should meet together or whatnot and all the information and, and yes or no and, and restrictions and six feet apart and, and all that stuff. 
But I think God used that. Well, I, I know God used that in such an amazing way to build his church. He might not have built it numerically, but he refined those people in it. And he built them spiritually. He built you spiritually. And do you know what's amazing coming out of COVID? That people, I think, want to be together. There's a desire to gather together, to be a part of a community that is centered on something. Though the world is shifting around, it doesn't. That is secure and firm. Jesus is using that. He says, I will build my church, my body. We get to be a part of this spiritual building project. He is the one it's built on and built for. It's all about him. It's not about us. It's about him. This is important to remember as we gather to worship. Horton Baptist Church belongs to Jesus and it's for Jesus. Yes, we are recipients in many different ways and it's good for us and it's needful for us to be a part of a local body. But ultimately, this church belongs to Jesus and it's for Jesus. And that's helpful for us to remember. We don't worship us. We need to be careful we don't let our preferences or what we like or what we want to always direct our thinking of how church operates. Sure, we're going to do things in certain ways. Decisions are going to have to be made. But we should come with the humility and understand that ultimately it's not about us. It's not about us. It's about lifting high the name of Jesus Christ and encouraging others. Singing this morning was wonderful. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Oh, how good it is to gather. Christ exalted is our song. Let the glory of your name be the passion of the church. Those are songs that demonstrate that it's about Jesus and not about us. And that's important for us to remember that this is his church, not ours. It's not mine. And we might use that language, and I understand what, what we mean when, when we say that. Like, this is my church. I belong there. I'm, I'm pastor of this church. But ultimately, it's not my church. It's not Pastor James's church. It's not those of you who have just joined in the past few years and those of you who have names that have been here for generations. <laughs> it's Jesus's church. We need to remember that. And it's for him. But look at the promise then in verse 19. Or excuse me, the end of verse 18. Peter, I'm gonna use you and other individuals like you in your confession and I will build my church. It's for me and it's by me. And look at the result. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The church is secure against hell. The church is secure against all spiritual adversaries and enemies. There is some discussion by commentators that this statement was uh, particularly striking because in this area, there was um, a place of worship for pagan gods that had this door. And it was, in a sense, the entrance to hell. Uh, the location of these gods and whether we, uh, we would take this as fact or not. But the point here is very clear is that the spiritual forces and enemies set against Jesus will not prevail. And the gates of hell, the fortifications, the ramparts, it's the idea of the forces of the enemy shall not prevail against it. Shall not prevail. There is, there is no doubt that the church will endure, that Christ's body will endure, that they will not be overcome. But I think it is interesting that by stating that 
they will prevail implies that there is a battle. And it's very, very clear there is a battle. It will be attacked and it will be bruised. The church itself will not always conduct itself as it ought to. But through those ups and downs, it will not be defeated and destroyed. We have a hope and that hope is secure as Christ is. He says, I will build my church and the enemies, the spiritual forces of opposition shall not prevail against it. He continues in verse 19, says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. There's a lot of discussion and a lot of abusing of these verses through certain veins of Christianity. But I think it denotes authority and power, keys, right? Entrance into something. Meaning that through the church, believers will be challenged and taught. As 1 Timothy says, the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. They will teach what conduct befits the gospel and to recognize through various means the testimony of those who claim to be a follower of Jesus. And this should humble us. The promise of perseverance is for our particular, uh, excuse me, the promise of perseverance is for the universal church and not necessarily our local church. Jesus isn't saying here that Horton Baptist Church will persevere always and forever. But he's saying, no, my church, my universal church will as it's expressed in local churches. But I bet most of us could think of other local churches that at one point in one time were these bastions of faithful gospel preaching. But through the times and through the ages and through different shifts in culture and, and changes in the congregation, they're a shadow of their formal selves, if they even still exist. But even though local churches may rise and fall, the universal church, the gospel still endures. And so that should humble us. It should cause us to reflect on ourselves and understand that we don't have it all figured out. That we are not indispensable to God, but rather he chooses to use us. May we be faithful in proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ until he comes. The promise is to build Christ's church, not necessarily our own, but by God's grace, it seems as if he's continuing that. May we humbly and faithfully continue to serve him. The church, it's built by Christ. It's built for Christ. It's built in the building of the body. As Christ uses us, as Christ gives us the promise that he will build and that it will persevere. So these few weeks as we gather all together as one body, and as there are other things you might be thinking about and other things that might make it a little bit more difficult coming on a Sunday morning, remind yourselves that this is what Christ has promised, that he will use men and women like you and I to build his body, that ultimately he is building for his own glory and that we have the promise of perseverance, and that he chooses to use us. May we, by humbly responding, be used by him, and let ourselves give glory to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for the opportunity to worship you, to lift high the name of Jesus Christ as we've looked this morning in Matthew, or that it would be about you and not us. And Lord, may we Understand that you don't have to use us, but yet you do. May we realize, Lord, it's by your grace and your mercy that you use fallen individuals who have been redeemed through the blood of Christ to make your name known. And Lord, may we do that through your empowerment and the Holy Spirit and your word to build your church.
pray this in your son's name. Amen.